Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to the Gospel of John this morning, John chapter 6. And if you've got a pew Bible, I hope you'll use one if you don't have your own copy. A pew Bible is on page 891 this morning. Today we're going to look at the fourth of the seven signs of the Gospel of John. If you're just joining us, we're in a little mini-series on the seven signs of the Gospel of John. And Pastor Matt fed us from the word last week on the third sign, which was the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. And the week before that, Pastor Joe preached from John 4 on the healing of the nobleman's son. And the first one was the sign of the turning of the water into wine, 150 gallons to be quite exact. Um, A wonderful wedding gift it was at that wedding feast in Cana. And today, probably the most popular one, the feeding of the 5,000. Now, I don't know what your memory is of the teaching of this particular sign, but mine goes back to flannel graphs in Sunday school. And um, I remember it seemed like that this story was taught on every time would make me very hungry. I don't know if it was the time of the day or it was those pictures of those sourdough loaves of bread that they placed up there, those five large loaves of bread and then the two big bass. And now that I've studied the passage more, I I don't think that was completely accurate, but as a kid, uh, it was somewhat intriguing. This particular um, sign needs a little bit of introduction because we don't view food the same way in 2021 as they viewed food in the first century. Now, I'm not saying that they didn't enjoy food like we enjoy food. They just didn't view it the same. I mean, we live in an industrial, rebel, uh, industrial society in the Western world, and the way we view food compared to the way they view food can be ascertained or understood by a few simple questions. If you were to ask your five-year-old, for instance, where does food come from, most of them would not say the farm. They would not talk about the animals or the crops. They, they would say, from Giant, <laughs> from Wegmans, from BJ's, from Aldi's, from plastic packages. Um, We view food as coming from a source other than from the ground or from the animal. Another question that might be revealing about the differences between the way food was viewed in the first century and the way we view it today would be this question. What is the staple diet in America? Now, if that question were posed to you, it would be very uh, confusing because there really isn't one staple diet. We have so many immigrants in this country, and we have so many choices in this country that you couldn't say that there's one staple diet. We were on vacation with my sister-in-law who lives in Guam, and my um, nephews both uh, were born in Guam, and they do have a staple diet. They believe that you should have rice at every meal. <laughs> in fact, there were, where's the rice? And in most societies, even today, there is a staple diet. I mean, if you were to say the staple diet for America, I don't know what you'd say. Pizza, salad, fish and chips, sweets, steak, (laughs) Chick-fil-A. What's a staple diet uh, for Americans? But in this time period, it would have been bread and fish. It would have been a three-word answer, bread and fish. That's the staple diet. Another question we could ask just to notice the difference between the way they view food and the way we view food is what happens to our food if there's a devastating drought, no rain, or a devastating, ravaging flood? Our answer would be the prices are going up. 
um, we would say, well, if you can't get oranges from Florida because of a frost, they would send them to us from California. And if we can't get them from California because of a fire, they would send them to us from some other country. I mean, they would just be more expensive. That would not be the way that they would answer it. If you had a devastating drought or ravaging flood in the first century, you would probably die because you couldn't have food. Just two more questions to help us understand the difference. One question would be, why do we work? If you ask that question to someone just along the street today, they would probably say, so that we can earn money to buy stuff. But in societies that are not industrial and in the first century, 80% of their income would go toward their food. In fact, some of you who have visited abroad have noticed this to be true in third world countries even today. When I've been in Papua New Guinea and Port Moresby or even in Groke in the, in the, in the mountains, they will talk about working all day for their food for the night. That's just how they live. And the final question that would be really odd and incoherent to people in first century is, what's your favorite snack food? They never viewed food like snack food. They didn't know what a pantry was. Now, my boys, the pantry door never stops. That's true in my home. It, it never stops moving. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you that have teenage boys, it never stops moving. I mean, even two minutes after the meal, what are you doing? Getting a snack. <laughs> they, they didn't know what a snack was. For billions of people even today, the, the notion of a snack is somewhat incoherent. I, I mention all of that because not that it's morally wrong or you should feel guilty because you live in a first world country where we have snacks and pantries and we have all kinds of choices for food. I'm simply mentioning it to you because you will not understand the real sign of this sign if you don't understand the difference of the way we viewed food versus the way they viewed food. You see, they were in a non-industrialized society, an agrarian society, which was a relatively poor one. So all these questions are raised in this passage in John 6, 1 to 15. So bread and fish, that would have been their answer for their staple diet. They worked all day to eat for their evening meal. Food was not a snack item. It's what sustained their life. Maybe one more illustration will help. If, if my wife, which she does from time to time, will send me a text or call me and say, on your way home from work, pick up a loaf of bread. You know how I do that? I don't determine how many grains are in the bread, the loaf of bread. I recognize the package. So I typically will go to Giant. I go to this aisle that has all kinds of loaves of bread, and I look for that package that I recognize, and I grab it. Now, if they don't have that, I'm in a heap of trouble, right? Because um, I will have to call and say, what kind of bread? Or I'll have to make a man choice, which could be very dangerous. I'll probably come home with Wonder Bread. That would be glorious, uh, but that would not be acceptable. Um, but I would come home with some other option. But in this society, if you didn't have bread, you would die. So no bread, you die. No food, you die. We don't understand that, and that's why I introduce it this way, because the whole sign of this sign is that without bread you will die, and then Jesus is going to interpret it. So my two points this morning are going to be the miracle and the meaning of the miracle, because Jesus helps us immensely by telling us exactly what it means. So let's read our text in John 6, 1 to 15. And here's what I want you to do. As we read our text, I want you to notice the largeness of the crowd, the humongous need, the inability to meet the need, 
and then the need overwhelmingly met. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, just a note, after this is actually about six months. Where did Pastor Matt leave us with Jesus last Sunday? Where was he at? Jerusalem, right? After this, we're told he's now in the northern, eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. That's about 100 miles away. So that after this, there's a lot there, which means that John doesn't deal a lot with chronology. He deals more with theology, okay? So he's putting these signs together, not so much as this happened and this happens. So actually about um, quite a few months have taken place, six months or so between these two events. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, named after the emperor Tiberius. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, Philip was from that area, so he would have been the one to ask, where can we go to find the food? And he said this to test him, for himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii, that's about eight months' wages, worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get just a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, real quickly, I want to set something straight. The flannel graph that I enjoyed at Sunday school was not accurate. John helps us here by saying these were barley loaves. Barley was the poor man's bread. These was more like Ritz crackers, wheat thins. These were not the sourdough loaves that I had in mind from the flannel graph. Nor were these fishies, these fish, nor were they bass. <laughs> they were more like sardines. These were probably pickled fish. They were the poor man's fish. So I want you to picture five Ritz crackers, and two sardines. <laughs> okay, that's what Andrew's saying. Hey, I found a boy's lunch. Five crackers and two sardines. Reporting for service, sir. <laughs> Jesus said, have the people sit down. Because Andrew says, how will this help with so many people? Now, there was much grass in that place, which reminds us that it's Passover time. This is in the spring. The grass is green. Jesus said, have the people sit, sit down. Then there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now, some of you ladies are already getting lathered up over this. Don't. When he mentions that there were 5,000 men, it doesn't mean that the ladies didn't count, nor did the children count. The way they would do that is they were saying there were 5,000 family units, and they numbered them by the amount of men that were there. Now, one of the other gospel writers say this was in addition to men and women. So a conservative view is this is actually not the feeding of the 5,000. It's more like the feeding of the 15,000 to the 25,000. Okay? That's more what we have here. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they what? And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So let's consider the miracle. Now remember, these are called signs in the gospel of John. 
The word miracle is used in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's a word that means power. So whenever when Jesus would do one of these, it demonstrated his what? His power. Another word that's used is wonder. And this refers to how people reacted when Jesus would perform these miracles. They were in awe. But this word, sign, means a sign. It means there was something significant that happened. Something beyond just the powerful miracle. It was indicating something even more. What is the sign here? Well, the miracle is that of feeding of 15 to 25,000 people with five biscuits and two sardines. Now, just let you know the setting real quickly as I describe the miracle. The Lord Jesus has, we're told in the four Gospels, this one miracle is the only of the, one of the signs that's recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and what? John. The only other miracle that's described in all four Gospels is the one that describes the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that makes it significant. But the other part of this that makes it significant is this is the only miracle that all of the people who observed it got to participate in the miracle. You know what I'm saying? So, so they're able to participate in the food that Christ creates. So there was testimony not only of the disciples who saw him perform the miracle, but all of those who got to enjoy it. The other thing about this miracle is the Lord Jesus, similar to the one that Pastor Matt preached about last week with the healing of the man at the pool, is the Lord Jesus then gives a discourse that really unpacks the meaning of the miracle. But back to the miracle. This miracle happened on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, where the Golan Heights are located that we describe now. We're told in the other Gospels that Jesus was tired and weary. His disciples were tired and weary. They had gone out and performed miracles, and now they wanted to talk about it. But they were so busy, they didn't even have time to eat. So the Lord Jesus says, we need to come apart. We're going to go up to here to this little... Um, this location where we can get some rest. We can kind of have a, a debrief session. You can tell me about what's happened in ministry. And so they go to this area on the, and we're told they go by boat, according to the Gospel of Mark. And by the time they get there, the crowds beat them there by foot. We're told that they were so busy that the disciples didn't have time to eat. We were on vacation last week, I told you, and we were in this ice cream place, and I think it was an ice cream place, that had a sign that said something about being hangry. And some of my family said, that's what dad's like a lot of times. You know what hangry is, right? When you're hungry and you're hang angry all at the same time. Well, the disciples were kind of in that position. And this was supposed to be their, their little vacation, a little respite. And as soon as they get over there to the northern, eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, the crowds beat them there because they wanted to see more of the tricks, more of the signs. He's healing people. We're told that the Lord Jesus saw those people, and what was his reaction? I know what my reaction would have been. Come on. Can I get a few minutes? We're told they looked at him, and he was moved with compassion. He said they're like sheep without a shepherd. And then he asked Philip, who lived locally. He was from that area, we're told, earlier in Gospel of John. He, he said to Philip, he said, where can we buy food for these people? Now, Philip seemed to be the bean counter, the kind of the accountant of the group. Every family has one, right? Right? 
don't we all have somebody in the family that's always calculating about how much this would cost and the statistics here and that there and this could happen? Well, that was Philip. And Philip immediately begins to say, well, it would take about 200 denarii for us to buy. That's eight months' wages when you get one denarii a day. Um, denarius for a day's wages. That'd be about an eight months' salary. And that would be just enough for them to get a pinch. And then we're told in another gospel that Jesus actually said to the disciples, you feed them. Because the disciples had said, you know, it's late. We're into healings, but we've never been into feedings. We need to send them locally to get lodging and to get food. And Jesus looks at them and says, you feed them. Now, imagine you were one of these disciples that have been seeing the crowd swell. Perhaps you've gotten excited about this. Maybe you're one of the disciples that's in charge of PR, and you're like, this is really going well. And all of a sudden, you're saying, you know what? They're going to get hangry. Let's send them back to the local areas where they can get some food. This is not a good place for eating, and there's a lot of people here. And Jesus says, you feed them. And one of the Gospels, Mark says that Jesus actually sent the disciples out into the crowd to find out what was available. And so Andrew, seemingly a spokesman, comes back and says, we found one little boy who had lunch. He has three, uh, five biscuits, and he has these two sardines. But what is that for 25,000 people? Can we dismiss them, Jesus? <laughs> you, you can almost hear the cynical side of Andrew, just like with Philip, this, this is not possible. And then we're told that the Lord Jesus says, I want you to have them sit down in groups. In Luke, it, we're told that he put them in groups of 50 and groups of 100, which means he was creating aisles for ushers. All our ushers in the group, you understand what he was doing. He was organizing this so that he could have people to serve them their food. And then we're told that he took this little lunch. Now, again, I believe there's room for some sanctified imagination in this passage, right? I know our Lord Jesus and his kind heart. He did not steal that boy's lunch. We won't know until we get to heaven what he told the little boy and what he was going to do with his lunch, and somehow the boy was willing to give his lunch. You know what liberals, people who don't believe in the inspiration of the Scripture, you know what they say about this text? They say the real miracle was ethical. Jesus didn't really create any food. What happened here is this little boy was willing to share his lunch, and then there were a lot of other people that brought lunch, and they saw his example, and they all decided to share. Now, I believe that there's a reason why all four gospel writers said this is what happened, because this is what happened. And so the Lord Jesus has them all sit down, and then he gives a prayer of blessing. Now, lest you think this is our prayer of grace that we give, our prayer of blessing that we give, before a meal, sometimes we thank the Lord for, we ask that the Lord will bless the food to our bodies, and that's probably not at all what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is actually thanking his Father for this provision that they're about to enjoy, which is what we ought to do when we say grace or we give thanksgiving at before a meal. <laughs> but imagine what the disciples were thinking at this moment. Again, holy imagination tells me some sanctified imagination tells me that there were some disciples that had their eyes open during this prayer. They're like, what is he doing? I mean, he's praying and thanking the Father for five Ritz crackers and two sardines. The only way I know to illustrate that it would be like me coming in today and say, you know what, folks, we're going to have a little brunch before we go today, and part of the service is we're going to enjoy brunch, and I've brought together for us to enjoy a bagel. And you're going to say, what did, what did you say you brought? I brought a bagel for us to enjoy. I actually thought about doing that, particularly for the outside service today. Bring one bagel, maybe have some of the ushers 
just take a pinch and see how much you would get of a bagel if we distributed it to the whole crowd. I'm imagining that the Lord's praying for this blessing and the disciples are like, what happened? Now, we don't know from the text where and when the miracle actually took place because we're told that Jesus began to break the bread and the sardines and then he distributed it to the disciples, then they distributed it to the groups of 50 and 100, and everybody was full. They ate all that they cared to eat. I remember distinctly the first time as a kid where my parents took me to a buffet. It was the greatest day of my young life. My mom told my brother and I, we're in the back seat, I still remember it, she said, we're going to a buffet. I said, what is a buffet? A buffet means you can eat all you can. You, it's all you can eat. They used to put that on the phrase. Now, they've changed it now. It's politically correct and politically incorrect to say all you can eat because they were contributing to the delinquency of fat people, I assume. So what they've now said is all you care to eat. So you only, you only eat all you care to eat. But the passage here says that they ate all that they wanted. Now, again, remember, we're talking about five biscuits, two sardines, and the Lord Jesus has multiplied it. So was it multiplied as they were passing the plates? Was it multiplied as the people began to reach in and the disciples began to distribute it? We are not sure, but we do know this, that there was so much food for so many people that they ate all that they could eat, all that they wanted, and then there were 12 baskets remaining. A lot of leftovers. Now, some would spill a lot of ink over what these 12 baskets were meaning. Maybe they were talking about 12 doggy bags for the disciples. That's my best guess. That after all of this, after all, they had gone away because they were so hungry, because they were so busy they couldn't eat, that they leave this big sign and all of them get the biggest doggy bag you can imagine. That's my take. I don't know what your take is. Some see a lot more symbolism here. But here's the miracle. The Lord Jesus provided, as the creator of the universe, a sign to demonstrate that he not only met the need, he created food and sustenance for all these people. But what's the meaning of this? That's my second point. And the meaning of this, the Lord Jesus is going to unpack for us at the end of this chapter. I want you to look again with me in verse number 35 of John 6, where one of the first I am phrases is mentioned. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of what? Life. Whoever comes to me shall not what? And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, I want you to see, this is a true sandwich. We've got bread here, and you go down to verse 48. Jesus is going to say it again. I am the bread of what? Bread of life. He says, this is just like when Moses brought the manna down or when it was brought down under the leadership of Moses in the wilderness, now it's happened for you. But I'm the bread of life. What Jesus is saying to them is, whoever comes to Jesus will never hunger. Now, you'd have to go back up in the passage to understand after our fifth sign that we'll look at next week, Jesus walking on the water, that the Lord Jesus goes over to the west side again of the Sea of Galilee, and the group follows him there. They can't understand how he got there because he didn't get on the boat earlier. We're going to learn next week the reason he got there is because he walked on the water. But he, he said, you're looking at me, looking for me, not because you want to see the signs, but because you want more food. I mean, Jesus knew these people. And I don't know if you really could blame them. I mean, this guy has become somewhat of a fish burger vending machine. I mean, you, after a meal like that, 
they're wanting more physical bread. They're like, he does more than heal. He, he gives food like Moses in the wilderness. Have you ever noticed, though, that Jesus here says, I'm actually the bread of life. You didn't come for me. You came for what I produced for you. Is it possible to view Jesus as somewhat of a food truck? As somewhat, even as a Christian, perhaps we begin to view Jesus as, what has he done for me lately? What can I get from Jesus? And so Jesus has used this sign to say that there is a possibility of you having physical food provided for you by the Creator, and rather than you seeing that he truly is the Son of God and that you can have eternal life through him, that's what these signs are supposed to remind us of or teach us, you actually want more of the goodies that he gives. And so you get focused more on the gifts, looking for the satisfaction in the gifts rather than the giver. Have you ever noticed how that food and eating is something we just have to keep repeating? Have to keep doing it again? <laughs> I mean, so you get up and you have breakfast, and then you're wanting to know what's for lunch. You know, one of my favorite questions that my wife probably doesn't like me to ask is when I go to work, I like to ask the question, and my boys like to ask the question too, what's for I mean, it makes you look forward to coming home, right? Unless you hear leftovers. <laughs> right? Okay, we're really working on that. But, you know, you hear that, it keeps you focused on it, right? But you have to keep eating. I mean, you have breakfast, you have lunch, you have dinner, then you want snacks. I mean, have you ever had this feeling at Thanksgiving you've eaten all that food and you go, I ate too much? All for 9 p.m. to roll around, and you're like, a turkey sandwich would be great right now. I mean, it just keeps happening. But Jesus says in verse 35, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not what? And whoever believes in me shall never. He uses a parallel. He's saying there's never any more thirst. Here's what he's saying, and here's the meaning. Catch this, folks. The meaning is... Our ultimate satisfaction comes for G from Jesus for our ultimate desires. Our ultimate longings are satisfied ultimately in Jesus. He's the only one that can satisfy our ultimate desires. Said another way, Jesus is the ultimate satisfaction for our ultimate longings. There's no, nothing about Jesus that ever runs out. So this sign was they had more than enough. They had more than enough so that they had 12 doggy bags. And Jesus never shrivels up. He never runs out. He never gets old or moldy. He's not a perishable food item. Jesus is like drink that causes us never to thirst. In John 4, he told the woman at the well, the Lord Jesus did, didn't he? He said, this water, when you drink of it, you'll never, ever thirst again. And she says, well, give it to me. I won't have to keep coming to this well. But he was referring to the Holy Spirit in the heart, how he satisfies the soul. But the world offers us something different. Rather than the food and drink that will cause us to be thoroughly and completely satisfied, the world offers us sweet, sugary, as you say it around here, soda. Or if you're from the Midwest, you probably call it pop. Or if you grew up in the South like me, it's all Coke. What kind of Coke? Sprite, Dr. Pepper, it's all Coke. But we all know what these soda pops, Cokes, do to us, right? I mean, we understand that mixed with the saliva, it causes the 
thirst actually to grow. So if you're in the desert and you're really thirsty and somebody offers you a Mountain Dew, it may sound really good, but ultimately it's not going to satisfy or quench your thirst. And the world offers us all kinds of things like this, doesn't it? I mean, there is the real push today that sex will really satisfy you. Take it. It's a sweet, sugary drink, or pursue athletics, or pursue sports, or pursue exercise and dieting, and focus on really getting that promotion at work, or if you could get that oceanside cottage that you've always wanted, I mean, once you get that, you're really going to be satisfied, and you know, it's like that Mountain Dew, it's like that energy drink, the first sip is really good, but it really doesn't satisfy it brings no complete satisfaction. And Jesus says here, when you drink from me, you will never be thirsty again. Folks, the meaning of this miracle is that the only true, fulfilling satisfaction comes from Jesus. Eating, drinking, as it were, the Lord Jesus. I mean, are we ever amazed? It seems like it happens over and over again where you see one of these Movie stars or athletes or TikTok stars or YouTube stars seems to be recently that they've got all of these followers and all of these views and these huge crowds and then you see that they've gone into depression and then they've taken their life. You're like, all of that didn't satisfy? It would, it would appear to me that all of that glory and all of that fan following would have brought some type of fulfillment. Yet as believers, we ought to know that this passage is saying that Jesus is the only one that brings true fulfillment. Working those few more hours to get to that certain income level is not going to bring you satisfaction, sir. Maybe you think of it this way. If, if you could have your greatest dreams, your most outlandish dreams come true, what would they be? Now, please don't say them out loud. What, what, what would they be? You know, secretly, if this could happen, you just, I would be all set, as they say in New England. I'd be all set if this could happen. You know, maybe it is that vacation home. Maybe it is those stocks soaring and you liquidating and you being set for life. I mean, what is it for you if it took place, you, you think, then, then God, then God, I'd be all satisfied. Well, it's just like eating. It's going to be, I'm ready for my next meal. And Jesus is saying here, and he's teaching by this principle, that Jesus is only satisfaction for our heart's true longings. If you don't know Christ today, I want to remind you that, and this is not to scare you, it's to tell you the honest truth, that hell right now is populated by people who, when they lived on this planet, were living for things that would satisfy them, and there are, it's filled, it's populated with hungry people right now. Thirsty people right now. I'm not talking about because of their torment. I, I'm talking about because they were longing for fulfillment, and they still haven't found it, because it's only in Christ. Later on in this passage, he says, because they began to question him, what do you mean? How do we do the works of God? What, what You need to believe in me and believe that I'm that bread sent down from heaven. You received manna from Moses, and you've been looking for a new deliverer. That's why they wanted to crown him king. They were looking for that prophet, according to Deuteronomy. It would be another Moses, or it would be another 
another deliverer like Joshua or Judas of Maccabees. They were looking for a redeemer, a rescuer. And Jesus says, here I am. I'm that bread that came down from heaven. If you'll eat of me, you will never be hungry. See, Jesus satisfies fully. Jesus quenches your soul's thirst. I want to finish by just asking you, as a believer, have you tasted of the Lord that he is good? You've trusted in Christ, but, but now your heart has wandered to you don't find your true satisfaction in Christ. And, and your life is one of always looking and pursuing and hoping that if things change and if this works out and if I get that body and I, I get that money and I get that job or I get that promotion or my, my children get that scholarship, I mean, that's when I'm going to find satisfaction. Folks, you're drinking the soda of the world. It'll never satisfy. Jeremiah says it this way. You went and you, you dug your own wells looking for water. And, and they're all cracked. They're leaking. Jesus is the only one that satisfies. And how easy it is to get focused on the things Jesus gives rather than the person Jesus is. You remember when the Hanes were here, our missionaries to Papua New Guinea, and one of the things that he shared with us is about something that I was aware of when I was in Papua New Guinea. It's called the cargo cult. You know what I'm talking about? The, the cargo cult refers to different things in different cultures. But in Papua New Guinea, it refers to in World War II and in other times, um, there was strategically cargo that was dropped by the military the Allied forces in Papua New Guinea that had all kinds of equipment and other stuff that was dropped for the soldiers that were there. Well, when the soldiers were removed or they were run out, all of these cargo boxes were there, and they began to associate white people, the white man, and the cargo box. This must be an answer from the prayers to the gods, and so the cargo, the cargo cult began to... Um, be promoted, that you just need to pray that they'll come back, and when a white man comes back, they'll bring the cargo, and they'll start dropping from the skies. The Nays were telling us one of the difficulties about every village wants a church plant now, but they may want it for the wrong reason. They'll act like they really want the gospel to come to their community, but actually what they want is they want the cargoes to start dropping, because at some point, the goodies start coming down, right? I mean, the stuff. We've heard about the stuff, so we want to do whatever we need to do where we get the stuff. Have we fallen for such a pragmatic Christianity? I mean, we're a productive society as Americans, right? We're all about getting stuff done and accomplished. But we, we start want Christianity like that. We, we want a Christianity that has 15 principles for financial planning. Give me 15 principles for a happy marriage. Give me 15 principles where all my kids will turn out straight, turn out right and turn out godly. We want 15 principles for this and that. And if, if it works... It must be good. And, and Christ, as long as you will give me these things, that's enough. And Christ is saying, you're not coming for me, you're coming for the food. Is it possible to reduce Jesus Christ to a food truck? I'm serving you, Jesus, because I want something from you. I'm following you, Christ, as a consumer, not as a disciple. 
parents, is it possible that we, we, we actually posture our children towards chasing the food that won't remain? For the food and drink that will not last, will not satisfy. And, you know, if we can get them that job and we can get them that scholarship and we can get them that opportunity, and this is our focus, and before long the, the child looks at the life and he says, okay, I, I see how this works. Christianity and Jesus are part of a big smorgasbord. And all my other pursuits are too. I want a little of Jesus, I want a little of that, and I want a little of this, I want to be a well-rounded person. Rather than, no, Jesus is the only one who satisfies. My soul must find its drink and its meat and its bread in Jesus alone. Lest we be too hard on these people that wanted another food truck. We need to ask the Lord, is this us? Are we more focused on what Jesus will do for us than knowing and eating, as it were, and drinking in Jesus? Think of the means of grace. We know him through his word. How precious has the word been to you the last month? We speak to him in prayer. Boldly in the throne of grace. How precious has the hour of prayer been to you this past month? Being with your church family, hearing the word, singing the word, praying the word, having the word in the ordinances. How much is this? We're going to feed on Christ. This is the priority. It's not get up on Sunday morning and say, well, are we going to church, mom and dad? Well, what's going on today? Oh, no, 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 no. We're going for the bread, folks. We're going for the bread of life that will sustain our souls forever. See, this sign, it was much more than the amazing feeding of 25,000 people. That's amazing, yes? The sign pointed towards there's only lasting satisfaction in Jesus. Amen. Lord, thank you for the words of Scripture that are perfect Lord, I ask that you would help us to rightly divide them. Lord, we tried today, but I know that there have been things said that have not been as holy as they should be. And Lord, I pray that you would help flee from the memory of your people those things that will not edify and will not point them to Jesus and burn into their hearts the words of your Spirit to change us, to grow us, to strip away the worldliness from our lives and our hearts. Lord, we have become very comfortable with the American dream. We chase it as much as those who know not Christ. We're looking for satisfaction and for fulfillment in all the places that will never grant it. Forgive us, O oh Lord, revive us, change us, break our hearts. May we have a contrite and broken spirit before you. We pray that we would love our Lord Jesus, that we would feast upon him in his word, in your word, that you've given to us by the inspiration of your spirit. May we point our families and brothers and sisters towards complete fulfillment in Jesus alone. May the things of this world become strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen. Let's stand and sing.